Well, good morning. Uh, today we're going to begin a new series to kind of kick off the beginning of our summer season. Uh, we're going to be talking about story for the next four weeks. Uh, there are different elements of story. We're going to talk about God's story. We're going to talk about our personal stories. We're going to talk about our collective story. And those story can sometimes be a cliche word. We realize that what we, what, we, what we read in the Bible is the story of God's interaction throughout time. Because the story of God has been told throughout time. It begins in the Garden of Eden, right? And it ends in the city of God in Revelation. Now, God's story, of course, is timeless. It's one that exists even before the first page of the Bible. But the story of God's interaction with us has been told throughout the pages of the Bible. And the, the, why we want to know what that is, why we want to focus on that, is because that story isn't over yet. There's still more of the story left unwritten. Now, I'm not talking about adding pages to the Bible. That's not what I'm talking about. That part of the story is closed. What I'm saying is that you and I have been invited into God's story. We've been invited into the story of the redemption of all things. We've been invited into the story of God's love for his creation and the love that he has for each and every one of us. If we're going to play our part in that story, we first need to know what God's story is, and then next week we'll talk about how that relates to us individually and then how it relates to us collectively in two weeks. So today, like we've kind of already said, we're, we're going to start by taking a look at God's story. Which means we're going to try to take a 10,000 foot view of the Bible in order to create a framework to hang some of our other things on. We're going to try to tackle Genesis 1 through really, to the New Testament in 30 minutes, which is a lot. I understand that. We're going to have a lot of passages. We're going to be jumping around a bit. Uh, I've got them. Uh, I've got an outline there for you if, you if you need it, and hopefully you can follow along. So if you've got a Bible, make sure you just always have it ready to go, because we're going to flip through a bunch of things. did my best to bring it down to as, as short as I could. So we're going to talk about God's story. Now, the story of God begins in Genesis 1. It begins by even declaring, in the beginning. It says, in the beginning, God creates, and he creates everything, right? He creates us. He creates everything around us. He creates all of this beautiful stuff, right? Whether it's flowers or trees or the animals around, he creates cardinals. He creates beautiful, beautiful creation for us to enjoy. He created it all to be perfect as well. I can't imagine what the garden would have been like. He creates everything to be beautiful and lasting, He even declares at the end of this creation that all of it is good. To just have a moment in that space would have been overwhelming, I'm sure. Because as we know, the story of God turns very quickly, doesn't it? The story of our interaction with God turns very quickly. Shortly after the creation of this beautiful world, humanity falls. We fall. And invites, we invite sin into the picture. And why do we do that? We did that because we wanted more than God was willing to give us. We wanted more than what we had been given. Because the original temptation, the temptation of humanity, was that we wanted to be like God. Which is the one thing that we didn't get to do. Right? Isn't that how the devil comes to Eve? He says, God, devil comes to Eve and basically says, God's holding out on you. Right? That he knows when you eat of the fruit, you will become like him, knowing good and evil. And Eve hears that, and she goes, you're right. He is holding out on me. He knows something I don't. He's God, I'm not God, and I wouldn't mind being like him. 
From the very beginning, we've wanted to be the gods of our own life. And so Eve eats, and Adam follows. Now at this point, right off the bat, the story could be over. It could have ended right there. Because God could have justifiably so destroyed everything including us, right? He had warned Adam and Eve the consequences for eating the fruit. Those consequences were death, weren't they? If you eat of the fruit, you will surely die. Meaning that God would have been completely justified in scrapping the entire thing and starting over, right? Hey, good try. Good experiment. Didn't work. Earth gone, starting something new. But as we know, he doesn't do that, thankfully. (laughs) Instead, Right away in the pages of Genesis 3, he decides to start fixing what is broken. God says, I'm not going to destroy everything. I'm going to take what is broken and I'm going to fix it, which is a beautiful thing. And it's actually God's character throughout the entire Bible. When things get broken, instead of wiping them out most of the time, he fixes them, builds them back up, turns them into something beautiful. Now, what's so interesting about this part of the story, though? We broke it. God decides to fix it. But he doesn't just decide to fix it on his own. At this point, he decides to invite us along in that fixing process. Right away in the pages of Genesis 3, we see it. God declares to Satan, to the serpent, he says, you will strike her heel. Right? You're going to cause her pain, the off, Eve's offspring. You'll cause her pain. You'll strike. It'll sting. It'll hurt. He goes, but her offspring, the woman's offspring, a human will eventually crush your head. You see, right here, God's story of redemption becomes inseparably linked to our story. We will now partner with God. We will now work alongside of him towards the redemption of all things. Hey, you broke it, you're going to help me fix it, God says. Which really is the basis for everything else in the story. Because it goes on. After, after the garden, the world falls away from God again. Now again, he could have started, destroyed us and started over at this point, but he doesn't. He restarts things with Noah. Shortly after Noah, we see the world fall away again. In these first 11 chapters of Genesis, we, that we see humanity continually striving to be the gods of our own lives. We see humanity trying to fix what's broken in this world on hi- human ingenuity and drive. It's the sto- that's the story of the Tower of Babel, right? What are they trying to accomplish in the Tower of Babel? They're trying to build a tower to get to the gods, to become like the gods. And so we're forced into humility again clearly proving in the first 11 chapters that when we are left to our own devices, we cannot be trusted to work towards the redeeming of the world. We instead only work towards our own selfish ambition and pride. So God decides to come at us from a different angle. Turn with me, if you will, to Genesis 12. Genesis 12. As we've seen for the first 11 chapters, from the moment humanity fell, God has been calling us back to himself, all of us. He called us to be with him and work towards making things right again, but as we've seen, we rejected that over and over and over again, even with restarts in there. So God decides instead to call a small group of people 
to work towards his purposes in a special way. Now, let's be clear. God was available to all people everywhere. That's why I love the story of Melchizedek, if you've never read about him before. It's this, this strange guy. He's a priest so, uh, that Abraham's walking around, and he runs into this priest of God that's just out there, right? He's not related to Abraham in any way, and yet we see that he is serving God. God's available to all people everywhere, but he's going to interact with one group of people in a very special way. And, and as you might already have guessed, those people are the Israelites, starting with Abraham. And so we ask ourselves the question, what did that interaction entail? What were God's purposes for the Israelites? And that's what we see in Genesis 12, 1. It says this, The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people and your father's household, to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I, whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. We can see right, at, right here that we haven't moved from the original purpose at all. Restoration is still the point. God says to Abraham, I'm going to be with you in a special way, a way that I'm not with everybody else. He says, I'm going to make you into a nation. I'm going to walk with you. He says, I'm going to protect you. Those who work with you are going to experience my blessing as well, but those who push back, I will push back on them. Which is a pretty amazing promise for Abraham, isn't it? It's a good gig. It's something you'd want to have God actually work with you, be on your side, and push back against those who aren't. But notice that's not all God says, is it? Sure, God promises Abraham a special blessing, and that blessing is amazing. But right, right, right here in Genesis 12, we also see that he gives Abraham a special responsibility. God says, I will bless you. But he goes on to say, and then you will take that blessing. And you're going to bless other people with it. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing, God says. The blessing isn't about keeping it for yourself, God tells to Abraham. It's about using that blessing to bless the rest of the world. In other words, he says to Abraham, you have been blessed in order to be a blessing. That's Israel's purpose. That's their mission. That's what God's plan was for Israel, and we see that play itself out through the Old Testament. God was going to bless them so that he, they could partner with him to restore the broken world. Humanity, without God's direct interaction, had forgotten him, and we had stro stro strove to be the gods of our own lives. And so now, God is going to pick this small group of people who is going to show the world in a very tangible and visible way the benefits that come from walking with the Creator. And those benefits were supposed to be amazing. You can actually read it at the end of Deuteronomy. The list of blessings that God would have given the Israelites had they followed him. God tells the Israelites, if you follow me, you're going to have rain in season. Because you're never going to lose a war. You're going to greatly increase in number. You, you, nobody can push against you. You'll be protected. He says your, your herds will grow. You'll have wealth beyond your wildest dreams. He says, if you walk with me, the entire world will be able to see you and be able to see my blessing. God says, I'm going to bless you so the entire world takes notice and then use that to bless them. That was always the purpose. And so time moves forward. Abraham's descendants do grow into the nation of Israel. 
They spend time in Egypt, and they're miraculously freed from Pharaoh and taken into the desert. You see what's going on there as well. God shows the people in Israel, or the rest of the world through Israel, the benefits of following God in Egypt. God's, the plagues are an example of God's power with those he's with. Egypt's the most powerful nation on earth. The entire world is watching as those plagues wreck Egypt. Even the most powerful nation on earth with supposedly, in the ancient mind, the most powerful gods on earth can't stand up to God. What in the world is going on in Israel? These slave people are able to defeat Pharaoh. So they leave Egypt and they go into the desert. And now at this point, Israel needs to be the nation that God has called them to be. Now they need to serve him in order to experience the blessings that he's promised. Because by serving him, they're going to show the world how good and powerful God is. The only problem is they don't know how. You see, Israel lives in a world in which gods were fickle. They were angry. They were ever-changing. How do you make the gods happy in the ancient world? You guess. Dagon seems angry today. Maybe he likes chicken. We'll try that. So you sacrifice some chicken. Well, that doesn't work. Well, I guess we'll give him some goats. Uh, that didn't work either. Well, what's more valuable than goats? Well, cows are, so you give him some cows. You guess. You can see ancient laments of people going, I've given you everything, and I don't know why you're still mad, other God, right? And that's why you can see how it degrades so quickly. You keep trying to find something more and more valuable to give your God, and sooner or later you're sacrificing your children, right? Which we see throughout history. So Israel's in Sinai. They need to serve God, and they don't know how. And God doesn't want what, for his people what the rest of the world has. So he takes them to a mountain in the middle of nowhere. He takes them to Sinai and gives them the law. Now I know the law can be hard to read. Right? There's the long sections in, in Exodus and Deuteronomy and Numbers and, and Leviticus that are really tough to read. There's all these details in there, some of which seem to be completely irrelevant for us today. But I'm going to tell you, if you skip that section, if you skip the law, you miss something really, really beautiful. Because the law was always meant to be a blessing. God knows the rest of the world doesn't know how to serve their gods well. So they guess. So what does the law, what does the law do? It removes all the guesswork, doesn't it? How do you love God well? Let me tell you in detail. If this happens, you do this. If this happens, you do this. If you need this, you do that. It's spelled out in detail. There is no guesswork when it comes to serving God like the rest of the world. The law tells the Israelites exactly how to do it. And notice that the law doesn't just deal with loving God either. Right? God says to the Israelites, if we're actually going to restore this world together, you're also going to need to love to each other well. But how do we do that? Because that also can be really confusing sometimes too, right? And so God lays that out as well. Because what is the law at its core? It, it's a guide to first loving God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And it's also a guide to loving your neighbor as yourself, right? Jesus says the entire law and all of the prophets hang on those two things. Every single one of the laws that you read in the Old Testament does one of two things. It either teaches you how to love God better or how to love your neighbor better. That's it. That's what they do, all of them.
God says to the nation of Israel, you have been blessed by me. Now here's how you can serve me in order to serve the world. God says, submit to the law. Give up your desire to be the God of your own life and do it my way. That's what the law says. Serve me and you'll experience blessings beyond your wildest dreams. And we already talked about what some of those blessings were. And you'll take that blessing and bless the rest of the world. But unfortunately, we see that Israel gets off to a bad start right away with the law. Before the last letter of the law is even written down, they take matters into their own hands, don't they? Moses goes up to the mountain to get instructions on God and how to serve him, but he's been gone for a while. And so the Israelites said, well, we probably better do something for God, right? We can figure it out, I'm sure. We don't need to wait. Because that's what they do with the calf, isn't it? They didn't build an idol to another god. That's not what the golden calf is. They built an image of Yahweh God. Because they thought they could do it on their own. Again, they were trying to take control and being the gods of their own lives, which is why that calf was such a big deal. They had already screwed up the very thing that God was trying to push back against. Now God's response here again is interesting. Now God is angry, of course, and so is Moses. He smashes the tablets. But God accommodates the people once again. He had started by saying, I want all of you, the entire nation, to meditate and practice the law. But you failed right out of the gate, before we even left the mountain. So I'm going to appoint a group of leaders to be the ones to study the law in depth and teach it to all of you. I'm going to take a smaller group of your people who are going to be completely dedicated to studying and, serve and, and teaching the law so that, so that all of you don't have to do that. And that group is the Levites. It's the priests. They were, they were, their responsibility was living out the law and teaching everyone else. And then the blessing of God rested on whether they did their job well or not. If the Levites, if the priests the priest did what they were supposed to do, the nation would be blessed. If not, well... Unfortunately, we can see that through the pages of the Bible as well. Because the story goes on. The Levites did not do a good job. They don't keep the law or teach others to keep it well, which creates the cycle of the judges. By the way, if you've ever wondered why the end of Judges has those weird stories in chapters 16 and ni through 19, the weird story about the Levites, now you know why. The chapters 16 through 19 of Judges actually jump forward in time before the very first story in Judges. And they're stories of the Levites' failure. If you, the story of the priest that, were, that lives in Micah's house, but at the end of the story, Samuel, who probably wrote Judges, throws a little twist in. He says, this guy, this Levite that's screwing everything up, by the way, that's Moses' grandson. Right off the bat, the Levites mess it up. Now, through Judges, the Israelites do experience the blessing of God, but they fail to let those blessings take hold for more than a generation and therefore fall, fail to bless the world and create a cycle of punishment and blessing all throughout the book. They serve God for a little while and things go well. They experience the blessing that God had promised with it, through God's immense patience. But then they take matters into their own hands again and fall right back down. And it cycles through the entire book of Judges and gets worse and worse along the way. So by the time Judges is over, Israel is calling for a king. Now God, had, God was always supposed to be their king. 
He doesn't want them to have a king, but he accommodates them yet again. You may have a king, God says, and the blessing of God will, uh, for the nation will rest on him. If he, if he does his job, if he keeps the Levites accountable to their jobs, which will keep the people accountable to their jobs, then you will experience the blessings of God and you can bless the rest of the world. And we start with Saul, who actually at first isn't so bad. He's humble and he serves God. He's actually so humble that when Samuel comes to anoint him the first time, he's hiding in the baggage. It's interesting to watch Saul's progression. Because he's humble until he's not. His fall comes in 1 Samuel 13. In which when Saul decides to take control of the sacrifice that was meant for Samuel, God had told him not to do it. He got nervous and did it anyway. It goes on in 1 Samuel 15. Saul makes decisions about what to keep and what to destroy, even though God has clearly told him to destroy everything. And it spirals downhill from there. We can see Saul's progression. He gets more and more proud. He grabs for more and more control and listens to God less and less. He starts by allowing God to guide him to be the God of his life, and he ends by taking that all back. And as a result, he falls. So the story continues with David, who takes the, thro the throne from Saul. And David's a fascinating character. Sure, David falls. He has his moments of failure. But what makes David different is that when he falls, he comes back in humility. He falls with Bathsheba, and he writes Psalm 52, God, please have mercy on me. David falls, but yet humbly comes back to God. That's why he's a man after God's own heart. And it also solidifies his line as the one in which the Savior will come. Solomon follows his father David. And Solomon's fascinating because Solomon actually brings the nation of Israel the closest it gets to accomplishing their original mission. Because Solomon is blessed beyond his wildest dreams. He's the wisest man to ever walk the earth. He's also blessed with unimaginable wealth. You see that in the pages of the Bible. The nation of Israel was blessed. And we see in that story that the world starts to take notice. Actually, you can look through many, many different foreign nations, and they, might have, they have stories about Solomon because his fame spread around the world. People look at Israel, and they ask the question they were supposed to be asking the entire time. What's going on in Israel? They've clearly been blessed by their God. And so we got to go see it, and they do. They come out to see it. The, the climax of that story, the best example of that story, comes in 1 Kings 10. If you could flip there with me real quick. 1 Kings 10. It's the story of Solomon and the Queen of Sheba, which is an amazing story. If you're in 1 Kings 10, look quickly at verse 1. It says this, When the Queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon, and his relationship with the Lord, she came to test Solomon. Verse 4, when the queen of Sheba saw all the wisdom of Solomon. Do you see where the emphasis is in the beginning of the story of Queen of Sheba? The emphasis is on her hearing about Solomon, and she wanted to see what Solomon was all about. She wanted to see what was happening in relationship to Solomon and the nation of Israel. But then jump ahead to verse 9. She sees Solomon, and Solomon blows her away. 
And look what she declares in verse 9. Praise be to the Lord your God, who has delighted in you and placed you on the throne of Israel. Because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel, he has made you king to maintain justice and righteousness. Do you see what happens here? The queen of Sheba comes to see Solomon. Hey, I heard about this stuff going on in Israel. What is it? I have to see it for myself. I heard about this guy named Solomon. I have to see him. She comes to see Solomon, and she leaves praising God. She notices Solomon's blessing, and then Solomon blesses her in the name of God. What's going on in Israel? Solomon says, I've got this God thing. Come join me in it. Come see how good God is. You see, that was the point of Israel the entire time. People who are supposed to take notice of Israel. What's happening in Israel? Why is it so? Why did they get rain every season? Why did they never lose a war? Why is all of this happening? And their invitation was always supposed to be, we've got this God thing, come join us. Unfortunately, right after this encounter in, in 1 Kings 10, things go downhill from Solomon as well. You see, the rest of chapter 10 talks about all the stuff Solomon had built and received. We, and we see through the years that Solomon is fo slowly falling away from proclaiming the goodness of God and instead allows foreign women to influence him away from God. God says, don't let them into your inner circles because they'll pull you away from me. And what does Solomon say? Nah, I'm pretty wise. I know better. And so we see that even the wisest person on earth when he stopped submitting to God and tried to be the God of his own life, falls. And so began the fall of Israel. The nation of Israel splits. Both kingdoms struggle to follow God for much of their history, even though God himself continually calls him back, them back to himself through the prophets. The nations don't listen. They try to do things their own way. You can see that theme running throughout the entire Old Testament, and ultimately they're both destroyed. Which brings the Old Testament to a close. No, no, we went through a lot of Bible in just a little bit. So let me just recap quickly what we've talked about. We see at the beginning, God created a perfect world. We wreck it because we want it to be the gods of our own lives. God doesn't destroy us, but instead partners with us to put this world back together. He asked the entire world to follow him, which they failed to do even after a complete restart with Noah. So he blesses a small group of people with a special blessing so that they can use that blessing to bless the rest of the world. Even after telling them exactly how to serve them within the blessing, they fail. So he assigns a small group of people within that other small group of people to serve him, the Levites, to teach others to serve them and in which his blessing will fall. But they fail. So he allows for a single king upon which his blessing falls within this small group of people to be in charge of leading other people to serving God and the line of kings fails as well. Up until this point, God has given humanity every opportunity to show that they have the capacity to serve them, to serve him. He made it easier and easier the whole way through and yet we still could not do it. We fail every step of the way. We cannot submit ourselves to God and lay aside our desire to rule ourselves. We cannot lay aside that original sin. We cannot lay aside the desire to be the gods of our own lives. And so we can't save ourselves. We can't be justified before God, no matter how much God accommodates us. 
which makes the Roman passage, the passage in Romans that much more beautiful. You see, we're powerless to defeat sin on our own. We can see that through the pages of the Old Testament. And so, God, at just the right time, while we were still powerless, sent Christ to die for the ungodly. You see, we can't serve God in the way that he asked us to. So God says, fine, I'll do it for you. That's the miracle of Jesus. He takes on the burden of justification through the law upon himself for all of us. He is the king on whom the blessing of God rests for all of us. He accomplishes what no other in the line of David could. He fulfills the law so God's blessing can rest on each and every one of us. The whole story has always been driving towards him. He opens the door for us. He opens the door to stand before God confidently for each and every one of us, and out that door comes something that's absolutely mind-blowing. Turn with me, if you will, to Acts 2. This is the story of Pentecost. Tongues of fire have just rested on the disciples' head, and Peter comes out to, tell, to preach a sermon to a crowd in Jerusalem. Acts 2, starting at verse 14. Says, fellow Jews, and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It was predicted in the Old Testament, in the last days, because Jesus has opened the door, God says, I will pour out my spirit on everyone. Or as Jeremiah says in, in his book, I will write the law on their hearts. This thing that was external will become internal. The Holy Spirit will live in each of us. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And folks, this is where we are in the story. We're in the last days. It's been the last days for 2,000-some years. This isn't a story about predicting the end of the world soon. But it's saying we live in this time of the last days in which the Spirit has been poured out upon us. We have the blessing of having the Spirit live inside of us to have the law written on our hearts to be able to stand before God justified. Not because we did anything, but because Jesus did it for us. We have been blessed. And I want to show you one more thing as well. Last time I'm going to make a turn. 1 Peter 2, verse 9. 1 Peter 2, verse 9. Peter says this, but you, and he's talking to Gentiles, that you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Therefore, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives amongst the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits. Do you see what Peter's saying here? 
He says, but you, us, Gentiles, now you are a chosen people. Now you have been blessed. That special blessing given to Abraham is now for all of you. It didn't used to be. Now it is. We have been blessed in the way that God blessed Abraham. Now you are a chosen people. Now you are a royal priesthood. Now that blessing that God had always intended for Israel is now on all of us. In order to do what? Peter says that too. You have been blessed, so live such good lives among the pagans. You have been blessed so that you can go and bless the rest of the world. You see, the mission has always been the same. The story has been told over thousands of years, and it's still being told through us today. The story of God partnering with humanity to restore all things broken is still being told today, and you and I help to tell that story. We have been blessed with salvation and the Holy Spirit in order to use that blessing to bless the rest of the world. We have been given the charge that was given to Israel. You have something special if you've accepted Christ. Now use that to bless the rest of the world with it. Because we've also been given the same choice as Israel. God asked Israel to submit to him to submit to the law, to lay aside their desire to be the gods of their own lives. And now he asks us to do the same. Will we submit ourselves to God? Now with the help of God himself inside of us. Or will we choose to still strive to be the gods of our own lives? It's a hard struggle for each of us. Why do you think the Bible talks so often about killing the sinful nature? Actually, in the passage right above it in 1 Peter 2, he's talking about that. The Bible tells us to kill our sinful nature because that's the part of us that still wants to be in control. That's the part of us that wants to rule ourselves. That's the part of us that we know we each have inside of us that says we know better and we can do it on our own, in our own way. And my guess is if, it each, if any of us were to be honest with ourselves, we know that that's true. There are times in which we can look at a situation and we say, clearly God asked me to do this, but that's going to be tough, so I'm going to do it my way. You see, God's story is an amazing story of redemption throughout time. It's a story of putting back together that which was broken. Not just by him either, but with us. It's an amazing story of him, of God, partnering with beings who on their own are dust. But in the very act of partnering with us, he gives us meaning and significance. God's story is an amazing story of patience and love persisting through constant failure. God's story is one in which even though we have constantly rejected him in favor of ourselves as gods of our own lives, still while we were powerless, he came to die for us anyway. God's story is one in which he desires to pour out his blessings on those who follow him. It was for Israel and it is for us too. God's story is also one that we get to be a part of. It's a story that is not yet completed. There are still parts unwritten. If you've accepted the gift of salvation given by Jesus, then the blessing of God falls upon you. If you haven't, talk to one of us about that. 
God's blessing falls upon you. God is with you. God's spirit rests upon you. It lives within you. And that's not something we ought to take for granted. Because when we see that fact within the bigger context of what Jesus' gift truly means, we realize how significant that blessing really is. How overwhelming it is. Which, which puts that much more weight on realizing both parts of God's blessing to Abraham. Folks, we have been blessed. But not so we can keep it to ourselves. Not so that we can feel self-righteous or better than those who have not yet been blessed. Not so that we can take it for granted like we so often do. We get to live each and every day walking with the Spirit. Galatians says, keep in step with the Spirit. The Spirit is right there with us. We get that each and every day. We have been blessed to use that blessing for other people. It's spread throughout the pages of the Old and the New Testament. Put off the old nature which is raised malice, unforgiveness, and put on virtue. Live such good lives that people see the goodness of God. The mission of Israel was always supposed to be different, to, to, to draw the eyes of the rest of the world, to show God's blessing in a tangible way that people could see and they could come and ask what's happening in Israel. That mission hasn't changed. Ivan Rest Church should do the same. When people look in at the church, they should say, what is happening at Ivanrest? What is happening in each of us individually? What's going on there? Because I want a part of it. Why do you guys treat each other this way? Why do you forgive? That's not the way the world does things. Yeah, we know. We've got this God thing. Would you like to join us? We're supposed to look different. We're supposed to draw the eyes of the world so that when they ask what is happening there, we can invite them into the God story we're all a part of. The story of God has been told throughout time, and we have the privilege of being thought significant enough to play a role. And there are pages of the story still unwritten. And so ask yourself, what will you add to those pages? Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion kindness, with humility, with gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for showing us yourself throughout history. And each of us wants to confess that we've fallen short of that blessing, that we have, we have desired to be the gods of our unloyed lives. We've rejected your way for our own. God, we each of us pray that you can convict us of that, that you can draw us back closer to yourself, that we can experience your overwhelming love that overcomes our inability to follow you. Help each and every one of us realize the blessings that we, blessing that we have been given and then motivate and inspire each of us to share that blessing with anyone who can hear it. 
We pray all these things in your name through the power of your spirit.